Good morning. Boy, this is not quite like a congregation in the morning, is it? Good morning. <clears throat> Thank you. Oh, we're doing great on time. Thank you, Joe. Uh, it's not until you get up here that you really realize how many people are here. And it kind of makes me wonder if we shouldn't be taking an offering. <laughs> but most of you have given enough money to the school as it is, so I understand. Well, it is, it is an honor, Leota, <laughs> you. It's good to be here. It's good to have the opportunity to preach in front of you folks. Um, just so you know, uh, I think I can speak for all the homiletic students. We don't view this as, as practice. I went to a church earlier this semester, and they said, oh, so you're practicing preaching today. I said, no, I do intend to preach. And so uh, <laughs> all that to say, uh, we do take this seriously, but we are thankful for the opportunity to, to gain experience. And I hope uh, that you will find it beneficial. We're going to be in Isaiah 40 today. If you have Bibles, and I hope you do, you can turn there. Or if you have a smart telephone, you can do that too. And when considering this passage in Isaiah 40, the first 11 verses, uh, I can't help but wonder, is it, is it just me? Or is it very easy to make light of the goodness of God? I don't think it's just me when I hear people say things like, well, God is so good, uh, the weather for our church picnic was, was perfect, and oh, God is so good, uh, the car ran really well on our road trip, and yeah, okay, God can be good in those ways, but, but it, it fails to, to, uh, to give uh, the, the proper mean to it, means to his, his goodness. I don't know if you're familiar with a man named Alan Gardner, but he was a missionary uh, in South America in the 19th century. And to put it very bluntly, he, he had a very bad life. He had a very hard life. And um, he had a lot of physical difficulties. He was very persecuted. And uh, nothing really came easy for him. In 1851, he died at the age of 57 from disease and starvation while serving on Picton Island at the very southern tip of South America. Next to his dead body lay his diary, which bore the hunger, with a record of hunger, thirst, wounds, and loneliness. And in the very last entry in that diary, his hand shaking so bad that it was barely legible, he said this, I am overwhelmed with the goodness of God. Isn't that remarkable? And although his circumstances were far less than enviable, uh, me and my fallen nature, I, I find his, his grasp and appreciation for the goodness of God enviable. And, and it reminds me of this, this passage here in Isaiah 40. And before we, before we dig in, uh, I, th I think in, the, in this passage we are going to see that we all should be overwhelmed with the glory of God with his goodness. And another way to put it could be that he has overwhelmed us with his goodness. Some background is required on the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Uh, you may be familiar. Um, but Isaiah is seeing a single vision that is covering decades of time. And he is, he is speaking of the fate of the southern kingdom of Israel. And it's not good. Israel is already in a bad state. It has divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was more or less destroyed, taken away, not to be recovered. And then the southern kingdom, Isaiah is saying, is, 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 could follow suit 
because, because they have deserted God, because they are following idols. And so for 39 chapters, we have doom and gloom. We have uh, records of, of death and starvation and exile. And it's, it's bad news. This is a very dark time. If you are the original hearer or perhaps reader of this, of this prophecy, to say you're having a bad day would be a, a tremendous understatement. 39 chapters of abuse and death, and, and what made it worse likely was that it was deserved. They had abandoned God. And then we come to Isaiah 40, without a doubt the listener of this, of this prophecy is just yearning for some good news. Anything good, anything positive at all. I don't know if you've ever been in a hospital waiting room uh, in a bad circumstance, um, but it's difficult, and the seconds and the minutes can seem like hours, and you are just yearning for anything good to happen, any good news at all. I wonder if it's not a similar feeling that they have here. I have four points. I imagine you won't be taking notes. Um, I know at this point in the semester, it's, it's difficult to want to take notes even in class. Not for me, but for, for other people. And so. <laughs> I am going to believe that you are taking notes, and so I will give you these four points as we go along. The first one is this. God is good in his comforting. Displayed in the first two verses of chapter 40 in Isaiah, after 39 chapters of abuse, uh, this is what Isaiah writes. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to her and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Finally, after 39 chapters, we have a stark contrast at this point to the end of the book, so much so that many people have questioned whether it's the same author or not, which it does seem to be the same author, Isaiah. And these people who have been longing to hear anything good have finally heard it. God is good in his comforting. He is going to comfort them. He's going to bring them back to the promised land. He is good in his comforting. I think this is a legitimate thing to look at and say, yeah, God is good. Look at what he is doing. But here's the deal. Uh, in the next three points that we, that we go over, it's going to make this first point just look like a footnote. It's going to make it look like pocket change in comparison to the goodness that is to come. This is not the fullest expression of God's goodness. This is something he did that, that was good, and they, I'm sure, uh, appreciated it. But it is nothing compared to what is coming. So God is finally comforting his people, bringing them back. Second point is this. God is good in his coming, and his coming to the earth. Beginning in verse 3. This is the second of four voices that were crying out. The first one was crying out comfort. The second is this. It says, A voice is crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's likely, as I read these words, you recognize them from, from another place uh, in the New Testament. Briefly, I would like to put ourselves in the shoes of the original hearers, uh, because they weren't as informed 
as we are, of course. Uh, in ancient times, it was not uncommon when a king was touring his domain and he would approach various cities, a message would be sent out far ahead of time saying this, look, the king is coming, you have to prepare a way. We can't have our king going over tall mountains. We can't have him going through steep ravines. We can't have him going on shabby roads with big boulders. You need to make a way that is suitable for a king. And here they have similar language. You better make way because God's coming down. Not just the king, but the very one who made those kings and put them in their power. He's, he's coming down. And this right on the heels of, finally, we're coming back, and God is saying, that's not all. Guess what? I'm going to come down. I'm going to come down. And this language is beautiful. Literally, in the, in the uh, Hebrew, it says, let every mountain be humbled. Let every valley be exalted. Let the deceitful thing become uh, even. And although the first two verbs we see here uh, are commands, they're imperative. They say, prepare a way and make straight a highway. But the rest of the verbs here are not imperatives. It seems like God's going to be taking care of it. Uh, every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Similar language is used just five chapters later when Isaiah is describing Cyrus. Now, of course, Cyrus was the instrument used to release Israel back to the promised land. And God's saying this about Cyrus far in advance. He's saying, I will send Cyrus, and I'm going to make his way easy. I'm going to remove all of his obstacles. I'm going to trim down the mountains and lift up the valleys. And it's, it's surety. It's surety. God is doing this. God is preparing this way. Of course, it is going to happen. And remember what the hearer of this prophecy is hoping for. They just want to go back home. They just want to go back home. God's saying, that's just the beginning. I'm coming down. Now, of course, this prophecy is fulfilled in Luke 3 and, and other places uh, by John the Baptist. John the Baptist, born just a few months ahead of Jesus, uh, he was a wild man. He, he lived in the wilderness. He ate the locusts and the honey. I don't know what exactly John the Baptist did most of his life, really, uh, but I imagine he studied the scriptures. And I, I imagine he studied Isaiah 40. And there must have been a point in time when he's reading about this voice in the wilderness. And there must have been one precise moment where he had to believe, oh, this is me. This is me. And how any human preacher can bear such a burden to proclaim such a great thing, I don't know. It is the very, the very pinnacle of, of human history. It's, it's coming down. And it's his responsibility uh, to proclaim it. God is good in his coming. Thirdly, I was a little bit straining for another hard C noise, but I came up with this. God is good in his cosmic control. I get double points for that one. <laughs> he is good in his cosmic control. Another voice is going to cry out here, starting in verse 6. A voice says, cry out. This must have been part of his, a part of his vision. So Isaiah says, well, what shall I cry out? Well, all flesh is grass. Its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Interesting placement here. We seem to have some flow going, and at first glance, this kind of interrupts the flow. 
Because we have, okay, God is good in his comfort. Finally, he's sending Israel back. And then he's going to go one step further, and he's gonna, he himself will come down. And then we have this message. All flesh is grass. Now, to understand the analogy, what, well, grass here in Bozeman right now is starting to green up a little bit. People are sharpening up their lawnmower blades and getting ready. But we know, just as sure as the grass is coming to life, we know in a few short months the grass is going to fade and is going to die. Come November and December, it will be dead, dormant, under snow, and forgotten about. We know it. It's sure. Because it happens again and again and again. It's so it's predictable. It's easy. No one would ever question that. And flesh is the same way. It's temporary. It's doomed, in a sense. We are, everything we see around us, it's, it's not getting better. Things, things are falling apart. And even our beauty or our faithfulness, depending on your translation, they say is like the flowers, which is seasonal and has even a shorter lifespan than the grass, interestingly. And when the breath of the Lord, the very breath that breathed life into Adam, blows on you again, you're done. That's it. It's that easy. And we see evidence all around us. Whatever we are looking at, whether it's a building or an animal or a, a tree or grass or even human beings, things are on their way out. Things aren't getting better. Things break down. That's the second law of thermodynamics. It's certain. Some of the more experienced individuals in this room probably know better than others that things just start to break down over time. That's the way it is. And I want to say this about the, the flow because this, isn't, this is interesting. God comforts his people, sends them back to Israel. God declares that he's going to come down and then he's good in his cosmic control in this way. He, this is a picture of the eternal entering into the finite. Because we just established the word of our God is what endures forever. Well, what's God up to? Well, in verse 3, it says he's coming down. Coming down where? Well, he's coming down to us. And what are we? We're, we're grass. So see, it's kind of putting God in its place. It's putting into perspective what is happening here. The eternal God, who has perfect cosmic control, is coming down to us, to flesh, to grass. Lest we think that somehow God owes us a visit. That, no, this is a God who's perfect in his control, his cosmic control. And we, of course, are not worthy to have him in our presence. It is amplifying the enormity of the situation that God is coming down. God is coming down. He's entering our realm, the realm that is just grass. For further insight, I'm going to look in 1 Peter chapter 1. Where Peter quotes this very passage near the end of the chapter, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 23. Now, this is a letter written to other Christians, and this is what he says to those Christians. He says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, like grass, I inserted that, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all the glory is like the flower of grass. The grass will wither, the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So I hope we can begin to see the picture. We are perishable grass, and thus we have been born again through the eternal 
word of God, God offers a change of status from perishable grass to imperishable children. Through the living and enduring word of God, which remains forever, that's who you've been born again through, exchanging your status. God is good in his cosmic control. So we have established that God is, is good and is comforting. He's bringing Israel back home. He is good uh, in, his, in his coming down to our earth. Then we kind of put God and us in our own places, the enormity of it all. And then our fourth point is, is going to cover, um, it's going to cover, well, what's God going to do now that he's here? What's an eternal God going to do in our world, a temporary world of grass? And that is this. The fourth point is God is good in his conquering. He's good in his conquering. Beginning in verse 9. He says, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. By the way, if you're going to climb a mountain just to shout something, it really has to be good. So he says this, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Herald of good news, this is the same people who've just been put through the ringer for 39 chapters for their disobedience. And now he's saying, you're the herald of good news. Get up on a mountain and declare it not just to Israel, but the whole world. You are bringing good news to the whole world. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift up your voice. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And in our final two verses, 10 and 11, I'm going to suggest these are, these are two pictures of, of what it looks like when Jesus comes down. The first, I will suggest, hasn't been covered yet. That's, that's yet to come in his second coming. The second, indeed, has happened in Jesus' first coming. You don't have to believe me, but you really should. So verse 10 says this, Behold, the Lord God comes, with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. To me, that sounds an awful lot like Revelation 22, verse 12, which Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. The word reward literally meaning wages, the same as the Hebrew word found in, verse four, uh, in Isaiah 40. So God's coming to conquer. God's coming to conquer with his arm. Now, the arm of God has always been used to symbolize, boy, what can God do? Well, God uses his arm for judgment. He, he uses his arm to get things done. In Exodus 6, it says, Say to the children of Israel, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from the burden of, the, of Egypt, and I will rid you of their bondage. I will redeem you with my mighty arm and with great judgment. Psalm 98.1 says, Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm gain him the victory. And then Isaiah 51 says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab into pieces and who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? See, the arm of the Lord is how he gets things done. Remember, just, just the breath of the Lord is, is enough 
to where we're done. We, we can, he can get rid of us just like that. What's he going to do with his arm? He's going to do amazing things. He's going to judge, and he's going to redeem his people. In verse 11, he says this, our final verse. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And I hope you caught that. The very arm that he will rule with in verse 10, he will use in verse 11 to gently lead his sheep. And here's what I'd like to suggest. Both verses 10 and 11 are a picture of God's conquering. Jesus came as a shepherd to conquer sin. He's coming back to conquer the world. I'm going to close in, in John chapter 10. Where this, this picture of Jesus as our shepherd, <clears throat> I think, is maybe best expressed in, in John chapter 10. Gently leading the, the young. I'm going to begin in uh, John 10, verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. God is good and is conquering, isn't he? Even with a humble servant, he comes down and he conquers sin. We've been speaking of God's goodness. I'll suggest this. The ultimate expression of the goodness of our God is found at the cross. It is found where the shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. In doing so, for us, we are able to trade our status from perishable seed, remember, we're just grass, to imperishable children of God. Asking for our trust and our devotion and in exchange, we gain the status of his children. With that truth in mind, remember how we said that the first point was, was just going to be a footnote? Yeah, God was good in his comforting Israel, but that was nothing compared to what he continues to do, the big picture. God is very good beyond our understanding. So that even when we do face trials, even when we lose our job, or maybe we have a wayward child, even when we have bitter and broken relationships, even when a loved one loses a battle to cancer, or even if we're facing starvation and disease in South America, we should always be overwhelmed with the goodness of our God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbly with the knowledge that 
these truths are over our heads. We thank you that you have revealed them to us in the level that we are able to understand. God, we can't begin to grasp your goodness. I know we can't. We are undeserving and we are limited. So God, we simply say thank you. We ask that by your grace you would allow us to come to a deeper understanding of your character and to a deeper trust of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.